Welcome to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. A week ago, I sat down with four friends on Zoom and asked them to share their thoughts and feelings about race and justice and where things stand here for people who look like them. You may be acquainted with Denise Reed, the director of the North Coast Chorale, or Brinus Jones Centeno, founder of Cascadia Concert Opera and executive director at the PAC. Charles Withers is a semi-retired businessman and a longtime activist in democratic politics. Amber Duffy is a young person whose smiling face you may have encountered in the past at the Blue Scorcher. All are black. We talked for quite a long time, and I've had to leave out much more than I'd like to get this program down to time. Oregon is still mostly white, and I started by asking what it felt like to often be the only person of color in the room. The, the thing that African-Americans get in every room they go into, Roger, you could walk in a room probably and almost invisibly walk into a room, not so tall, but Jan, Jan could invisibly walk into a room. No African-American ever has that privilege of walking into the room and not inviting the stairs. People think they're not staring, but they are. And you, can, you know they're staring because you've seen it your whole life. When I was young, I was more belligerent about it. I used to say, God, we've been here since 16, 19. You should have seen us before. <laughs> you should have seen us around. <laughs> We've kind of been here. But the staring, I think, is the thing that I, I noticed. And I told my daughter, I said, no matter how smart you are, no matter how brilliant you are, when you go on a job interview, the thing that precedes you is your black skin. <laughs> They'll make a judgment about you before they even met you. And uh, she thought I was sort of pulling a leg, but in fact, that is what happens. We get judged before you even talk to us. People are making calculations about who we are and what we are. And it's been forever, really. And I, I think that I found myself taking on the role of, okay, so let me educate you about me. <laughs> and let me give you comfort about me and my dark skin. And these kinds, I've always felt like that that was sort of my duty um, I still feel that way. Um, and Roger, you probably have not had to do that, Rod, um, in the sense of making sure people feel comfortable about you when you walk in the door. That whole thing like Denise was suggesting of negotiating, what is my message, negotiating myself into your space. Um, and again, like I mentioned about being, uh, having chosen classical music, which is a Western European tradition, of course, I was often the only black person in the space. And <laughs> someone asked me once, you know, have you ever experienced any racial tension? And my answer was, well, you know, I have the luck of being a female, so I'm a lot less um, of a threat uh, when I walk into the room as opposed to an, an African-American male. Um, uh, but yeah, of course, I've experienced just the sense of, is she going to sing well enough to do this? And I'll tell you all a funny story. I got an audition that I was doing and they just kept saying, where, where have you been? We're so excited that you've come here to sing for us. And then they just went on and on about this stuff and then I didn't get the job. And they explained to me, they were embarrassed but they didn't have appropriate lighting for me to be on the stage. Um, it's <laughs> little silly things like that, that are a part of and I don't, I have to be careful with using the phrase white privilege because I don't want to overuse it, but the fact that something as simple as appropriate lighting for a black person can affect hiring. Um, it's little bitty silly things like that, 
that you're continually negotiating? I, I think a lot of white people don't really understand exactly what white privilege is. Um, you know, they, they would say, well, I don't, I don't feel that privilege. And they're just not understanding that there are the extra barriers that they don't have to deal with. Right. Uh, not only that, it's uh, from uh, some of the uh, readings that I've done. It's a feeling, uh, white privilege is that I belong in all of these places. Whereas the African-American, the sense is that you don't actually belong. When I say belong, feel a place that this is where you are. There are people around you that are sympathetic to everything that you're doing and they're, and they're um, they don't have to negotiate about being in that place. They feel like I have the privilege and I'm in that place. And so I just call it a sense of belonging that, uh, that white America has. You know, un underneath the pigment, we're all the same hearts and blood and bones and sinew and minds and everything else. It has to be terribly frustrating to be defined in some cases by something so superficial. Well, I'll have to, let me tell you an incident that happened with me. I, when I was teaching early on and I had been in a junior high, I wanted to go to a high school and there were loads of high schools with openings and so forth. So I went in to interview and, um, as soon as I walked in the door, this is a principal now, she says, you know, none of the students that you're going to see look like you. And it was like, I'm standing there, am I supposed, is that a question I'm supposed to answer or what? You know, how am I supposed <laughs> to react to that? Obviously they aren't, you know, if this is a school, this was in a district, a school district in Las Vegas and predominantly white school district. But still, I was just going there, uh, these are the skills I have, you know what I mean. Um, I'm just applying for the job like anybody else. The, the thing has always been is, see, as an African-American, you feel like in any competitive situation, you have to overwhelm. You have to be better than. The old saying was you have to be twice as good before you would be considered equal. And it, it sort of come down, that came down really from the oldest days in our culture. Uh, you almost have to be so overwhelmingly superior to the rest that they can't possibly ignore you or not hire you. And yet they've not hired you and done this right. before. But you know, you, all things equal, if you go in a room and you're just as equal as everyone else, they're not going to pick you. They're just not. So we always had to be better than. And uh, it was ingrained for me from an early age, and I'm sure the other, I'm sure Denise and Berenice, have had the same feeling where they had to be better than the others to be considered for something. Well, I've been here about three years now. Um, when I started here, I was a barista at the Blue Scorcher. That's how I met a lot of y'all. Um, you know, for the most part, my experience has been good. I'll just say that. And for the most part, people do mean well. But there's still, here in Astoria, there's still definitely that racial bias is heavy. Um, when, so that was why I was kind of like, mm-hmm, when they were talking about, oh, you have to know more, you have to do better. I mean, I felt like that since I was a kid, even before I lived here. But, like, to have the same opportunities, you know, you kind of have to shine a little extra. You kind of have to stand out. And uh, I saw it the most when I was working at the hotel in town. 
um, and my boss really didn't know a lot about running the floor day to day, and I was working front desk, so I did because I had to. <laughs> um, and yeah, a lot of times guests would just kind of talk to me like I was dumb or like I didn't understand because they were making a mistake, um, you know, being young and black and a woman. I feel like all of those things, you know, have been used to discount any validity I may have. So like, I do feel like I have to make an extra effort to make sure they understand that I understand, you know, whereas like my coworkers don't have to do that. They don't have to, you know, earn their respect. They're just given respect. And you know, so I have to say, Roger, when I got your invitation, I said, wow, I, I'm honored to be a part of a conversation. But I, I, in the back of my mind, I kept saying, but gee, our story has been, it's the same one generation after generation and Amber is reminding us of that. It hasn't changed. We've been doing our part of letting you hear us. We've been discussing. There has to be a time when white people talk to white people and hold white people accountable. There's enough of us talking and saying the same thing. White people have to converse and confront white people. We're getting tired of having to continually fight it. And as Amber is proving, it's not gone. Amber, how old are you, if I may ask? Uh, yeah, I'm 22. Yeah. So she's oh, really? another generation wow. dealing with the same wow. stories that we're dealing, we've dealt with, with Denise dealt with, with everybody, my grandparents and white uh, people in general need to, when they hear, hear a racist remark, they need to correct it. If it's a oh, favorite uncle who they just love or brother-in-law who says racist things in, a, in an environment where there's no black people there, often white people just let it go. That's how he is, or he's, he's just that way. See, the way you stop him from being that way is to tell him you won't tolerate that sort of language around you. It's not going to change his racist opinions, and no one can really do that at the deepest level. But one of the things we really, we've lived with this whole time is we've accepted the fact that just don't be racist outwardly to us. Don't, don't do racist things. To tell someone to change their racist behavior is, is, is impossible. But we'll accept just not being racist in, outwardly toward us. We'll accept that. We just like to eliminate the outward sort of expression of racism in our society. And then there's just sort of the kind of racism that's never expressed where no one ever says anything, but a black person may be less likely to be hired as a choir director because there hadn't been one before. And it doesn't occur to somebody to look at a black person as a potential choir director. Have you run into that sort of issue, Denise? Yeah. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, fortunately, when I came to um, all the time, especially in the school district, but when I came here, fortunately, the, the issue was music, and that's what brought me. They had, the previous director had ordered a piece of music that was quite familiar to me. And so they, uh, the North Coast Chorale advertised, and they said, can you do this piece of music, you know? It was a Bach piece that I had conducted on several occasions. And so I said, oh yeah, I can do that. So I think that's why I have, I have that position. But there are lots of positions that, you know, people question about, and I, I still get, 
from people, from white people, questioning, oh, do you know that? Or, or um, do you see that? Or anything about the music, you know, which I really sometimes get upset about. <laughs> but it's the questioning because of, of the color. And I want to go back, though, to your thing about those small things that are, are um, that show racism. It's as, and probably Amber understands this too. When you go in a store and there are several people there, someone may say, I didn't see you and ask the other person who's white, what can I help you with? Oh yeah, ignore. Yep. Right, and this is, yep. when I see somebody step up a white person and say, no, she was before me, I applaud that person. Because that's Absolutely. the kind of thing Charles was saying, step up and call it out when you see it. This isn't the way this person should be treated. She was here first. And so I'm sure Amber has had that happen to her lots yes. of times. Hearing you, I'm sorry, hearing you say that, it's, I'm a little bit emotional because I'm like, wow. I didn't realize other people understand this and can put it into words, like, oh, yeah. especially being really young. Yeah. Like, it's just like, yeah. I was like, wow, this is real. Like, I'm not crazy. No. <laughs> no you're, you're not crazy, honey. You are not crazy. <laughs> I really think, I was nervous to share because it is a hard topic for me. I struggle with feeling even valid um like i thought so i responded in the emails like i might not say much because it's just a hard issue for me um but i you know this is really amazing and i wanted to thank roger for putting this together because um having those conversations you know that's how we're gonna get the change you know like like denise was saying sometimes you don't know if they're questioning you or if they're questioning you're capable because of your race you know or your intelligence or your whatever and also being a little bit introverted, sometimes I don't always articulate myself exactly how I feel. And sometimes I feel like that makes people see me as less smart, you know. That actually goes back into the times of slavery, really. The assumption is that black people didn't feel that we were somewhat less, felt less pain than white people felt, that we had no emotions, that we, that we couldn't possibly get subtleties. We only could get the sort of concrete, hardened stuff. We couldn't understand literature or fine music and such. Exactly. I think that's the other piece. The And uh, Denise, you brought it up, that we subconsciously, I know I do, I, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but subconsciously question so much because of what's been drafted down on us from history. If I feel or think something, I'm gonna take a moment and go, well, is it appropriate? I mean, I talk about self-censorship. We have been taught to self-censor for so long that like you said, mm -hmm. Amber, you are worried about, is this okay to say? And like Denise said, when you bring it forward, and I agree with you, Denise, we are a threat as women. You don't wanna be considered that angry black woman, right? I, I worry about that. If I bring something forward or if I, you know, bring my thoughts forward on something that I think is inappropriate, and it's because of years of us not being allowed to say straightforward, as I've heard any other, what we will sometimes jokingly call a crazy white woman, 
If I bring something mm -hmm. forward, there's always this titling of what am I saying? Is it appropriate or is it not? And who am I being when I am expressing myself or when I am concerned about my health? These are things that I, it's, it's an unfair disadvantage that we have whenever we're speaking. And continuing with that thought about when we're speaking, I was so offended the other day. I received a text from a friend who met well, who said, this person just said something that was a black person that they were sending to me. And the phrase, he was so articulate. I get so angry when someone yeah, says really. something about mean? a black person who's articulate. Like, are you expecting yeah. that we're stupid? And if we can form the words and connect our, you know, our nouns with our verbs properly, does that suddenly make me articulate? Those kinds mm -hmm. of things, that, that's what keeps us questioning who we are, right? And that's what I, is a, a, a true battle. Like you were saying, Charles, it's been handed to us for generation after generation after generation. I, I would say this, Roger, uh, the, old, the, the adage is that I've heard these colloquialisms over my life is that you don't talk like a black person. I don't know what that means, but I've heard it many times. Other black people sound more different or sound more, they, they're, I know what they're getting at. They're getting at the stereotypical way they think we sound because uh, entertainment throughout history, the great Hattie Daniels was an accomplished stage actress, yet they made her play uh, uh, that black maid subservient role in Gone with the Wind. Uh, Bill Bojangles Robinson, probably one of the cl greatest classical dancers of all, they made him do stick, basically, as a black man. So, you know, we've, their, their interpretation of what we sound like is based on stereotypes that they put in the modern media, in the, in the past media, of how black people sound. And so I've gotten that, and now, no, I know you've never gotten that, Roger, where someone says, you, you, don't, you, don't, sound, you don't sound like a white man. <laughs> I'm sure you've never heard that before. But I've heard it many times. You don't sound like most black people I've, I know. Well, you don't know any black people because there's black people talk like everything. I mean, we, we, we live in every state and we, you know, we pick up whatever colloquialisms or whatever accents the states we live in. That's just us. We're Americans. In my own experience, it has always seemed to me that the people who have been the most overtly uh, prejudiced, biased, are the people who've had the least contact with with yeah. others, with people who aren't, aren't like them. And in that sense, you know, it's another sense in which you are being ambassadors because you are having that contact with people of other races. So they get to know you as, not as a black woman, but as Denise, mm -hmm. and you as Barinas, and you not as a black man, but as Charles, this guy who's done all these things. And you, Amber, as this person who, you know, I know sometimes this isn't how you feel this inside, but this person who is always so bubbly and yes, happy is. and soft <laughs> and friendly and kind. Look at that smile. That's how, that's how we see you. And that's how people should know you, not, not as a, a person who happens to have a different colored skin. That's something about Amber. If only, Roger. She always had this smiling face and it was like, when you have somebody who greets you with a smiling face, it's yeah. like, I'm glad to see you, you know? Yeah. What I mean? yeah. Whereas if they give you another face, it's like, what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you doing here? Yeah. Yeah.
I think that secretly a lot of white people are very, very jealous that black people can have <laughs> so much fun in church. <laughs> it was our only it was our only vehicle to be ourselves, Roger. It, uh, that's the only place that whites trusted meeting or gatherings of black people. That's why the church is so important, even back in slavery time and Jim Crow South, is that the fear was black people meeting together. That, that was a fear always back because they must be plotting something. And so they were indeed telling stories, passing along news, telling uh, of where they thought people's children had been sold. And they did that within the church. And often it was in these songs and these spirituals that right. all talk about the oppression. And the thing is, the thing that gets me always is that they were always told all these things. They also told that no matter how good you are, you weren't going to white folks' heaven. And so, uh, and, but they still believed that things were going to, all those songs talk about things are going to get better. They're going to be better someday. But to tell a slave all he knew was a slave and everybody he ever knew was a slave. They, that things are going to get better was, was a reach. And, and let's be clear, Roger, see, the African-American experience is different than any, any ethnic group in this country. So we've come from the bowels of ships to 150 years of slavery to, pre, to, to another 100 years of Jim Crow, uh, modern-day slavery. Uh, and so now we are at a point here where we stand here and look at all the wealth that the country has to offer, that it has had to offer, but African Americans have been left behind systemically. I think I don't think it's there aren't enough African Americans who have ambition, who want a better life, who want their children have a better life. But I think the system has so much been stacked against us from really the beginning and reluctantly held on for all those years. And so the thing I get now, and I used to get, I don't get it here, but I used to get it in the South was slavery was a long time ago. Black people should get over that. Yeah. Well, I don't know how you get over slavery. What you should, they should say is, why don't you understand that I have that perspective in my DNA, that it's everybody I know has that same perspective. So why don't you learn to understand that as opposed to villainize me for holding on to some idea that somehow I should get over slavery. I uh, received a, a Facebook post from a friend whose friend said, you know, um, black people are not the only people who have been enslaved in this country. They were talking about, in fact, an Irish slavery, you know, people carted over, they showed oh, a picture of, and, and I, all I could think was, uh-huh, and how are they doing now? The, 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 the generation after that group of slaves, I bet you they're blending in and doing just perfectly fine because their white skin allows them to walk into a bank and get a loan and move on. It allows them to buy whatever house they want in whatever neighborhood. And I said, so the story is not the same. Yes, people worldwide have been enslaving each other. That's a human thing. But our black skin absolutely traces that line where we are dealing forever with that destruction of a whole race and generation of people, generations of people. I haven't asked you about, about the George Floyd killing and how that how that landed for you, how that hit you. Would, would any of you like to talk about that? Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off mainly because as a black man, I might have dealt with a little more of the sort of physical aspects of this. Roger, the first, my first knowledge of black men 
being brutalized and killed by police go back to my earliest memories. I had an uncle, I was probably six or seven, who was literally beaten and left for dead. He didn't die. And I remember him coming home, his face was disfigured and everything. And apparently he, he got beat up like this because he quote unquote looked at a white woman. Since that day and moving forward, there's been so much abuse, killing and of, of, of black people in general, mostly black men. And it's come through the ages. I've seen the outrage come on lately. I think mainly because it's being filmed. I think there's video. I think there's, there's the countless of thousands of other black men who were killed and by police and there was no video. And so I think that's happening. And I would say this because uh, someone says, well, this is different. And I say to them, well, I hope this is different. I really do. I hope it is different. But I'm gonna need time. I'm a little bit of a skeptic because I've seen so much of this in my lifetime that I I mm-hmm. I, I I hope, but I'm not so sure that this is a change. I hope it is though. I have a black son, obviously. And uh I went through a long period of that and and the culmination of seeing the officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck comes from the place of that officer's thinking that would stop my son now because he was driving and the officer said, what are you doing with this car? What are you driving this car for? Why is that? He's got, he doesn't need to stop as long as he has his driver's license and everything. So my son has to explain, this is my mom's car and I'm driving it, I'm on an errand any of those incidents where he was stopped about the car or about his friends could have escalated to Mm -hmm. what happened to George Floyd very easily because it started from a seed in the minds that these people are doing, like, like Charles said, doing something wrong, or it's not that I'm looking at them on an equal place as far as justice is concerned. They don't. They look you at you on another level. That has to be drilled into them some way for these types of incidents to stop. Our great good luck of having technology today helps these stories not just be hidden in the back. Fortunately, there are people who show up with video cameras and those kind of things to bring it to the fore. I think that is a change that we're lucky a lot more of it comes to the fore, and that might be um, a benefit of this age. <laughs> a lot so. of it that you can see, but there's so much that you can't see. Right. Absolutely. You can't mm-hmm. videotape. That's right. what needs to come to the fore. Those right. things, and, and this just, like I said, it's justice for everyone until people can see that and realize that. We have a long way to go. I think the vast majority of the white people in this country are decent, good people. I don't think the vast majority of white people are racist. I think the vast majority of white people love the diversity that African-Americans have offered this country. But I think they need to speak to those who don't, who aren't, the not so good ones. And if that conversation goes on, and it may be uncomfortable, it may be a friend you have, that if you decide that person is too racist to be my friend, because you got to decide somewhere. Do you want to accept friends as racist 
or do you want to say, look, I need, I can't deal with someone who feels this way about all these people who live in this country. If there's anything that people take away from this, it's just like, please, you know, it's nice to talk about it on social media, but the hashtags and everything go away. The change will be in those conversations with our friends and family, our churches, whatever your everyday activities. I feel like that's really, really where the change will begin is in our immediate communities and really taking action, not just performative, performative words anymore. Sharing their thoughts with us on this edition of The Human Beat were Denise Reed, Barinas Jones Centeno, Charles Withers, and Amber Duffy. Thank you to them, and thanks for listening. I'm Roger Rocca.